Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and uh, we are now reading in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 17, but it's particularly verses 12 through 14 that we're going to turn to later on to study. Says Paul, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Well, as we turn to God's Word this evening, let's turn to the Lord Himself and ask for His help and blessing as we study His Word together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You again today for the privileges that You've lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, not least this day of resurrection rest in Him. We thank You for His invitation to come to Him and to seek His face, and for the refreshing rivers of the Holy Spirit that flow into our lives from His heart. We thank You, too, that our Lord Jesus comes to us through His Word, and that He preaches to us Himself by His Word. Thank You for that Word of the Gospel, that He came and preached peace to those who were near and those who were afar off. And we thank You, our Father, that we have heard the preaching of our Lord Jesus as we have been awakened by His Spirit to realize that the voice that has been calling us is not the voice of the church or of a friend, 
but the voice of the Lord Jesus Himself. And we pray, therefore, that as only He can, He will distribute His Word to us this evening, that He will speak to us together and individually, and that as we sense ourselves drawn into His presence, that He who has loved us even as He found us will not leave us this night as we came, but change us more and more into His glorious likeness. So hear us, Father, we pray and bless us together for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Fathers have particular memories of their children. One of my favorite memories of my children, I'm not quite sure why it should be such a favorite one, except that it touched me deeply emotionally, was many years ago going to fetch our two middle sons from the golf club and I arrived more or less at the time arranged, and they were nowhere to be seen. They had slipped off to play another six holes. And as I waited and waited and waited, the sun went down, the uh, evening became a little darker. I wondered if I should climb the hill of the 18th hole to see if I could see my children in the distance. And just at the point at which I was beginning to become just a little frustrated, two figures appeared like silhouettes on the horizon some 450 yards away. A tall boy in his late teens and a small boy who was about nine or ten, I think, and carrying their golf bags, they made their way across the horizon. And I'll never forget looking up into the horizon and saying to myself, there they are, that's my boys. I would recognize those walks anywhere. And it's true, isn't it? You see uh, parents waiting at a school gate, and there is this mass of indistinguishable children, and a father or a mother recognizes the way their child runs. Somebody said to me just the other day that a friend of theirs was at some great occasion in the Marines. Their son, I think, was graduating. And here is this huge entourage of Marines identically dressed, wearing the same caps that seem to engulf them, exactly the same haircuts, the hairs on their heads being numbered and measured in that precise Marine way. And the mother picked her son out of this great marching company. There's my boy, even as he kept in line, even as he kept in step, she would recognize the way he walked and held himself anywhere in the world. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible so much likes to speak about the Christian life as a walk. 
And here in this context, when we have found, for example, in chapter 8 and verse 4, the transformation of those who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Paul is introducing us now in chapter 8 to the distinctive walk of the Christian life. He will take us through this in many chapters later on, from chapter 12 through to chapter 15. But he's beginning to introduce us to this marvelous idea that you ought to be able to recognize a Christian man or a Christian woman or a Christian young person from the way they walk, spiritually speaking, from the distinctive gait, from the manner in which we make our way through this world. And one of the fascinating things that Paul is now beginning to do at the point at which we've reached this evening is to weave into that notion of the Spirit-filled walk. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that the Spirit-filled walk is the walk of a child of God who has all the characteristics of the family of God to which he belongs. And you'll notice if you just glance down at the verses that follow how the particularly striking emphasis of the Apostle Paul in verse 12 through to about verse 25 and even beyond to verse 29 is that the lifestyle the Holy Spirit produces is the lifestyle of the children of God. Look at the family language he uses in verse 12. He appeals to the Christians in Rome as his brothers. Verse 14, he speaks about them being led by the Spirit of God and being sons of God. Verse 15, he speaks about them receiving the spirit of adoption as sons and crying out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, he speaks about them as the children of God. Verse 17, about the heirs of God. Verse 19, about the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then, so wonderfully, in verse 29, those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So, Paul's concern now moves from speaking about the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in the way we walk to this notion that we live and walk as Christians filled with the Spirit as those who have the characteristics of members of the family of God. And this is a great way to think about the Christian life, that we have been as Paul likes to say, adopted out of the old family of Adam into the new family of Jesus Christ. And just like adopted children, it takes us a while to get used to living in the new family. 
But as we do, that new family lifestyle begins to leave its imprint and its impression on us, and we become evidently members of that family. But since it is also true that adopted children have inherited genes from another family, there are often times, and of course this is particularly true when a child of some age is adopted, there are often those seasons when there is that instinct to go back to the old family ways. They have been taken out of the old family and put into the new family, but the old family genes have certainly not been destroyed. And so there is the struggle of which Paul was actually speaking in the second half of chapter 7, the struggle of the old and the new in the same single Christian life, the struggle of the adopted child to enter fully into all the privileges of his or her adoption as a child of God, the struggle, to use Paul's words in verse 14, to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit and so to live as the sons and daughters of God. And it's interesting, isn't it, in this context in verse 14, that when Paul speaks about being led by the Holy Spirit, he is not speaking about guidance. That's the context in which people usually employ this expression. The Holy Spirit led me to do this. The Holy Spirit led me to do that. The Holy Spirit led me to do the next thing. But in this context, Paul has a single thing in mind when he speaks about the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it's what he's mentioned in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, because all those who are thus led are the sons of God. So, one could say here that a primary hallmark of being a son of God is that we put to death the deeds, or really the misdeeds in this context, of the body. Or in the older translations, the mark of the leading of the Holy Spirit is that we mortify, that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, that language is not commonplace among Christians today, the importance of the mortification of sin. It has the, the aroma of the monastery about it and self-flagellation. But, of course, neither of these two things is what the Apostle Paul has in mind. What he has in mind is quite simply this most practical concern he has that Christians should deal with and defeat and conquer their sins that even although there remains in us a, a sense of, of our sinfulness, there remains in us the influence of sin. 
It is the Christian's responsibility as a child of God. Notice the language he uses in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We belong to the family, and therefore we are obligated. We have a debt to pay to the family to live in the family style, and that means putting away everything that is odious to the Father and everything that mars the family style in our lives, or in short, the mortification of sin. But you know, isn't it true that that's the way Jesus speaks? This is not Paul the Apostle coming from some kind of medieval monastery to tell us we need to mortify sin. This is what Jesus says. In that Sermon on the Mount that we're all supposed to love so much, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Actually, Jesus is far more vivid than the Apostle Paul in this kind of vigorous language about the way in which the child of God refuses anything that will mar the family reputation and the family likeness. And wonderful, isn't it, that it's right there in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, as it were, suddenly engulfs His disciples with the sheer unadulterated privilege of being sons of God, daughters of God, being able to call Him Father, enjoying the freedom of the children of God, having access into His presence, and in one sermon speaks about this blessed fatherhood of God that is the children's birthright by His grace, more than all of the Old Testament put together. So, it could hardly be clearer that if we are in the family, we eschew, we put away everything that demeans the family dignity and everything that besmirches the robe of righteousness which the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. And not only is that the teaching of Jesus, not only is that an obvious implication of knowing God as our Father, remember what we said a couple of Sundays ago about the presence of the Trinity? That is what the Holy Spirit is given to you to do. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a Christian believer for no other reason than, surprise, surprise, to make you holy. And if you're going to be holy, the apostle is teaching, there is going to need to be some vigorous attacking of indwelling sin in your life. It will not go away quietly. Now, that's all very well for the Apostle Paul to say that, isn't it? I wonder if you find him sometimes just a little frustrating because he throws out these comments. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, and you, you want to say, back here a moment, Paul. Don't throw out statements like that and then leave me just hanging in the air saying, well, it's all right for you to say those kinds of things, but how on earth am I going to be able to do them? 
And you know I often say that's the point at which you're liable to make a mistake and go to the local Christian bookstore and say, give me a book on the mortification of sin. Now, in this case, there's a great book in the Christian bookstore on the mortification of sin written by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin, and I commend it to you enthusiastically. It is one of the great books of Christian spirituality. But it's not fair to the Apostle Paul to say, well, I think I'd rather have John Owen here for a moment. It's fair to the Apostle Paul just to stop and to say, Paul, I see that you're saying, if by the Spirit I put to death the misdeeds of the body, I will live, but could you just give me a few clues? Just a few clues. And I think I always find that if I hold my nose and get under the water and stay there long enough with the Apostle Paul, it's amazing how in the context in which he's teaching us, he gives us all the clues we need to enable us to fulfill the exhortations or experience the description of the very thing that he's speaking about. And that's what I want us particularly to look at tonight in verse 13 to feel the emotion of his exhortation. Brothers, he says. Now, Paul wasn't one of those Christians who was always calling people brothers. I've met Christians like, hello, brother. Great to see you, brother. How are you, brother? And every sentence is punctuated with brother. No, he only uses this kind of language when he's on his tiptoes emotionally, and he's, he's putting his arms around us and saying, this is really important for us. Now, brothers, he says, I want to suggest to you there are three things in what he says that are very helpful for us. Actually, three things is just a disguise for 11 sub-points, but you will humor me this evening in that connection. First of all, there is the assumptions that he makes. Second, the motivations that he implies. And thirdly, the directives that he prescribes. You see, these words don't just fall upon us out of nowhere. They come in the context of what he's teaching us here in Romans chapter 8. And Paul assumes several things. First of all, he assumes that it is absolutely necessary for the Christian to mortify sin. You cannot make a success of the Christian life without mortifying sin. Because he says, if you live according to the flesh, instead of mortifying the flesh, the, the sinful propensities, if you live according to those sinful propensities, instead of mortifying them, he says, you will die. It's a simple matter. Either you set about killing sin in your heart, or sin in your heart will set about killing you. And the great thing, of course, is this, that we are no longer under its dominion. I remember as a student reading a book by a, a European theologian by the name of Oscar Kuhlman, and he used this illustration of where we are in living the Christian life, drawn from the Second World War. 
And he spoke about that day that historians and even contemporaries marked as what we call D-Day, when the decisive issue of the Second World War was engaged and fought, and the Western allies clearly had won the war, D-Day. And yet there was an extended season, as it were, of mopping up operations before that day that we call in the United Kingdom V-Day, final victory day, when the war was finally declared to be over. And Coleman says, this is where the Christian is living, between D-Day and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the D-Day in his or her own life when, through union with Christ, the dominion of sin in his or her life was broken, living between D-Day and final victory day, when the Lord Jesus returns in majesty and glory. And in between that period, although the victory has been won, there is still much blood that is shed. There is still much fighting that goes on. There are deep wounds that are born. There are struggles. There are moments of defeat. The issue has been fully and finally settled, but the victory has not finally advanced into every area of conflict. And this is the assumption that the Apostle Paul brings to this from chapter 6 and from chapter 7, that because we are living between the times in the light of Christ's victory in our lives and looking to the final transformation of our lives, that there is going to be conflict. But to use the old expression that we used to sing about when we were teenagers, I haven't heard this song for about 40 years, we're on the victory side. And that's precisely why the mortification of sin is not the activity of a poor, defeated Christian who doesn't know any better, but a Christian who knows that the dominion of sin has been broken. So, Paul brings the assumption that this is absolutely necessary, and he brings the assumption that we also, by God's grace, have, through the Spirit, the ability to do this. The ability to do this. Now, why should that be such an important thing to say? Because Satan often says the reverse to Christians, doesn't he? You can't do this. This sin is too big for you. You are in a hopeless situation. You will never, ever, ever really grow in the Christian life. But Paul's assumption is that since the dominion of sin has been broken, the Christian is in a position to deal with that sin and to overcome it. No, not finally to get rid of sin in our lives. That will not take place until either the end of our lives or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whichever comes first. But so to grow in grace 
that we are no longer living as though sin had the victory over us. Any sin had the victory over us. And so, this statement of Paul's, which, yes, implies an exhortation, but it's a statement because he really believes that this is the way that God empowers Christians to live, not in defeat by sin, but in daily defeating the remnants of sin in our hearts. But, of course, with that, he assumes something else, and perhaps this, for some of us, is the issue. He assumes we really want to do it. He assumes we really want to do it. So, there are these assumptions that Paul makes. Secondly, notice, there are motivations that Paul brings. Now, one of them is very clear in verse 13. He says, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. Now, what's the motivation here? The motivation is a tremendously important motivation in the Christian life is, think about the harvest. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And you know, perhaps from your own sad experience, from some brother or sister sharing a situation with you, I know from brothers and sisters sharing situations that, that so often when, when we fall into sin, the reason is we have not asked the question, what is the harvest of this pattern of life? What is the fruit that will be grown in my life by this? And Paul is saying, dear one, look at it. If you live this way, the crop in your life will be death. And by the time you notice it, it will be too late for you to do anything about the consequences of your spiritual actions. We reap what we sow. And we have an innate distaste, I think, most of us, for looking at the harvest of what it is that sin yields. But Paul is saying sin yields spiritual death and spiritual misery. Yes, sin promises pleasures for a season, but the end thereof is death because we reap what we sow. And that's a motivation, albeit it's a negative one. There's a greater motivation. It's this. It's for your sin that the Lord Jesus Christ shed His precious blood. It is any sin in my life, any sin in my life, would have required for my salvation that my blessed Savior would come from heaven and on the cross cry out, My God, why am I forsaken? And if He'd only come for one of us who had only sinned once, the answer from heaven would be, For that child of mine's sin. And if that isn't a motive for me to mortify sin, 
that for that sin the Lord Jesus Christ was mortified on the cross. I don't know that there is any motivation that is ever going to get me to mortify sin. But this is what he said at the beginning of the chapter, isn't it? He has said what it is that lies behind our ability no longer to walk after the flesh but walk after the Spirit is that God did what the law couldn't do and condemned sin in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And so many of the great masters of the Christian life in our Reformed tradition have said things like this, that when I see the nature of my sin and am quavering and wavering over the issue of whether I should tolerate it or mortify it, what I need to do is to drag it to the cross of Jesus Christ and say to it, this is what you cost Him. How can I not destroy you? You see, that's a very important thing, isn't it? That the motivation doesn't just lie within the strength of my own uh, spiritual condition. It lies in what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. If you want to know what God really thinks of your sin, the place to go, brothers and sisters, is not Mount Sinai, where He condemns it, but Mount Calvary, where He deals with it, and where you cannot stand and say, my Jesus, I love you, while at the same time you are looking at your sin and saying, and I love you too. What has your sin ever done for you, my friend? What has it ever done for you? What good has it done for you? What blessing has it done for you? Now, says Paul, see that in the light of the good your Savior has done for you and the blessing your Savior has brought to you. No wonder he says in chapter 7, I'm a complete mystery to myself, that in the light of what my Savior has done for me and what He's begun to do in me, I still keep sinning, O oh, wretched man that I am, that Christ has given His all for me and I still dally with my pride and with my lust and with my ambitions and with my selfishness. Oh, wretched man that I am, drag that wretched man, says the apostle to the cross, and there you will have motive enough. But there's another motivation he gives to us, isn't there? That this is something the Spirit dwells in us to accomplish so that if instead of mortifying sin, I play with sin, I am saying to the Holy Spirit of God, whatever you have come into my life to do, I am set on doing something else. There is an astonishing illustration of this in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's speaking about an unspeakable situation, and he speaks there about the way in which he is calling out Christians to be separate, and he speaks about the fact that they need to depart and, and to leave the 
unclean thing. And you remember how, in the context of the Corinthian, uh, Corinthian correspondence, he, he, he actually speaks about somebody who's going to a prostitute. And he says this, when a Christian goes to a prostitute, the Holy Spirit does not leave him. You understand that? You can't, as a Christian, go to a prostitute and say to the Holy Spirit, just wait outside the door for half an hour. And he says, will you join the Spirit to a prostitute? Now, you can name any sin you want. It can be something far less obviously distasteful, pride, willfulness, anger, impatience. When you become angry, you don't say to the Holy Spirit, just leave me for five minutes, I'm going to be angry. You become angry as somebody in whom the Spirit of the living God dwells. That's why Paul says, you remember in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So there are assumptions he makes. There are obviously motives that he supplies to us, and they're powerful and strong motives to enable us to deal with our sin. And then thirdly, I want you to notice some of the directives that Paul prescribes. Well, where are these directives? Because actually, he doesn't seem to give any clear imperatives, does he? But they're implied here. And the first of them is this, that you commit the whole of your life to holiness. You don't pick and choose the sins that you're going to deal with and the sins you're not going to deal with. You don't make progress in holiness until simply you put to death the misdeeds of the body, whatever they are. Remember the old days when uh, toothpaste used to come in metal tubes? And once you'd got near the end and you were trying, at least if you were Scottish, you were trying to get the last bit out of the toothpaste tube. And these little nicks appeared and the toothpaste started, you know, coming out of the side and you lost a, a whole night's toothpaste out of the side and you were trying to make use of this toothpaste right to the end. Uh, there's a principle like that in sin. Sin will go to the point of least resistance. And unless you deal with it as a whole, unless you're really saying to the Lord, Lord, just make me holy, holy, just make me holy all over, and you've stopped saying to Him, make me holy in this area because it's become a bit of embarrassment to me. People are noticing that I'm not really living up to my family uh, uh, lifestyle in Christ. No, the only way to deal with any sin is to be willing to deal with all sin. And that's why Paul places no qualifications on what he says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, 
But there's something else here that's really important, and that is that Paul never seems to give us this kind of negative instruction that we so badly need. A thousand judgments on all of that false talk that we shouldn't say anything negative as Christians. but it's true that we shouldn't say only what is negative. Because you see, all of this, all of the rigor and vigor of this, all of the strength of this in Paul's emotion as he appeals to these Christians as brothers, it's all surrounded by the notion that the Christian's mind is set not on the flesh, but on the Spirit and that the Christian has a new identity as a child of God. And so, as he or she lives as a child of God, there, there is the strongest possible motivation and directive to say, I want to live as a child of my heavenly Father. I don't want to do anything that will grieve Him. I live for His smile of approval on the whole of my life, and I am not going to make any excuses whatsoever for anything in my life that clouds His smile, that grieves His Holy Spirit, because He's my Father, and He's given His Son for me, and He's sent His Spirit to live in my life. He's given me everything He has. He said to me what the Father says to the prodigal in Luke chapter 15, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. You see, when that dawns on me, and we are just at the beginning of an avalanche of those blessings in the rest of Romans chapter 8, when that dawns on us, we see our sin in its true colors for what it really is, and our heart's desire is to put it away. Now, there's something else here, and uh, I don't know how profoundly conscious of this Paul is, but it's interesting. Actually, it's true almost throughout Paul's letters that whenever he uses the second person, you, he uses it in the plural. And so he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Of course, we take that to ourselves as individuals, but for Paul, it's not something that you do in isolation. And that's a great thing. You do it along with your brothers and your sisters. And here's something that the masters of the spiritual life have consistently said. There are times if you are struggling to deal with one particular prevailing sin in your life, then one of the things you need to realize is this. God doesn't mean you to do that on your own. Find a trusted brother find a trusted sister and say, dear one, can I trust you with this? I am really struggling with this. Will you help me to be accountable? Will you pray for me? 
Will you encourage me? And you know, sometimes Christian believers have almost immediate, large-scale deliverance just because they have shared their struggle with another Christian, not just because a trouble shared is a trouble halved, but for this reason, that if there is a distinctive sinful pattern in your life that you hide from others, and in a sense so you should hide it from others, if there is a distinctive sinful pattern in your life, you can be absolutely sure that the evil one will come along to such a Christian and say, now this is our secret. I'll tell no one. You tell no one. It'll just be our secret, because he's a blackmailer. He doesn't have honest weapons to use against Christian believers. And as soon as we fall to that blackmail, this would be too embarrassing for me to tell somebody else about. As soon as we fall to that blackmail, we fall into His grip and sometimes may fall into the darkest pits of despair and depression. But you see, when we share it with a fellow believer, we are really saying to the evil one, you can expose my sin all you want, and you still haven't told the half. Because I am not trusting for my standing with God, for my righteousness before God, on the quality of my Christian life, or the sinlessness of my heart. I am standing before God with the hope of salvation exclusively on the basis of the finished work of Christ, and that's a privilege I share with other sinners. And any other sinner worth his or her salt is not going to read you a lecture, but embrace you and say, my brother, my sister, we are sinners together in this. You know so little of my heart, or you would never have been frightened to share this with me. There are so many things in which I also struggle. But brother, sister, our righteousness does not depend on our ability to say to Satan, I am not that sinner you are describing, but to say to Satan, I am that sinner you are describing, and far worse. But I have a great Savior, and I can say, Jesus Christ died for sinners like me, and clothes sinners like me in His perfect righteousness in justification. And in that sweet communion, that moment of honesty with one another, we're able to come to the Lord and say to the Lord, cleanse me from my sin, Lord. Put your power within, Lord. Take me as I am, Lord, and make me all your own. 
Lead me day by day, Lord, underneath Your sway, Lord. Make my heart Your palace and Your royal throne. And we begin to make progress, and our lives begin to become reflections of our Lord Jesus Christ. My, what a battle the Christian life is, but what a great thing to know Captain Jesus and His saving grace and the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to make you holy. May it be so in all our lives. Heavenly Father, this is an entire ocean, this eighth chapter of Romans that you've given to us. It has words in it that have strengthened Christians on their way to martyrdom, and words in it that have sanctified Christians who have struggled with sin for many days. We thank You for its all-sufficiency to touch every aspect of our lives and all aspects of every one of our lives. And we are so conscious, Father, that since You have adopted us into Your family, there must be so much work You still have to do that we should be finally conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our elder brother. We pray we may not be surprised by the struggle, nor discouraged by the wounds, nor given over to despair by the wiles of the devil, but may, wearing the armor of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, be able to stand fast and to stand firm and to put to death the misdeeds of the body, that we may live. And thus, in the sweetest and most obedient way, be led by the Spirit of God and have a growing confidence as we see Your work upon us and within us, that we really are the children of God and have the privilege of calling You Abba, Father. Lord, especially tonight, we pray that in a congregation of this size and this nature, there may be many of us struggling secretly with sin, some of us who even feel that we have fallen into terrible bondage. We pray that You would nerve us for the fight, some of us who have even given up in despair. We pray that Your Word might work in our hearts and give us courage for the battle, and that by Your grace we may make progress in that battle from day to day and grow in grace and more and more have a sense of the glorious triumph of the gospel in our lives. So hear us, Lord, as we pray for ourselves and pray for one another and bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.